Starting at Romans 13, 11 through 14, and I think that you'll see that they are very much connected to what went before. And now, as Paul brings this section to something of a close, he says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of life. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, many of you no doubt know the story of the great early church theologian Augustine and how Augustine came to faith in Christ. Augustine was a philosopher and he was also a very immoral man. He was given over to sexual immorality. He had um, many mistresses and at the time when he was converted, he was living with a woman who was not his wife. And yet Augustine was under great convictions of sin. The Lord's hand was, as it were, heavy upon him. And Augustine had no rest in his soul because he recognized that the sexual immorality in which he was living was wrong, that it was evil, that he had given himself over to practice every kind of evil. And as the Lord's hand was heavy upon Augustine and yet he was not yet converted, he found himself one day walking with his friend Alpius and found himself in a courtyard and was really at an end of himself. And as Augustine recounts in his autobiography, Confessions, the Confessions, he says, I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of heart when I heard from a neighboring house a voice of either a boy or a girl I do not know chanting and often repeating, take up and read, take up and read. Augustine would later note that he thought it was probably a game these children were playing. Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine, under conviction of the Holy Spirit, felt as though the Lord was convicting him to take up Scripture and to again read. And so Augustine recounts that he opened God's Word and he read that first section on which his eyes fell. And those words were, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And Augustine said, I read no further, nor did I need to, because instantly, at the end of this sentence, serenity, serenity infused my heart as by a light, all the darkness vanished away. Augustine would be converted. He would become one of the greatest theologians in church history. He would carry the gospel far and wide. 2,000 years later, almost, we're reading Augustine. It's remarkable. 
how God used this man who was given over to so much sexual immorality, so much debauchery, so much rebellion against the Lord, and in a moment, reading God's word, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh, he was converted. Now what's interesting, God used this passage in a singular way to bring Augustine to himself and to saving faith, and yet the Apostle Paul is writing this to a church of professing believers. The Apostle is not addressing the unbelieving world, though there is a word there. He is addressing men and he is addressing women who have professed faith in Christ. And it almost seems odd that as he is writing a church that he has given in those first 11 chapters, those glories about what Christ has done and and what they have experienced and how they have been redeemed, how Christ has forgiven them and justified them, adopted them, all the privileges that they have, and, and how now they are in chapter 12 to present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is the reasonable service. The Apostle Paul will now come to what seems a bit odd. Why does he now say, wake from sleep, arise? We'll say it in the book of Ephesians too. Awake you who sleep, arise, and Christ will give you light. Well, I think very simply we're going to see this morning that the apostle understands that professing believers are not immune to, to spiritual slumber, to falling asleep, to stop being watchful, to giving themselves over to sensuality and debauchery and sexual immorality and every kind of wickedness, that every believer is susceptible to that. There is a great danger for believers to grow spiritually um, uh, uh, weary and lukewarm, uncautious, unguarded, unwatching. And Paul uses that great analogy of sleep there in verse 11. I want us to see two things that Paul is essentially doing here in these few verses. He is first calling professing believers to awake from their spiritual slumber by remembering the time. How is it that we awake from spiritual slumber? By remembering the time, and then secondly, by remembering the clothing that we are to wear. Remembering the time and remembering the clothing that we are to wear. Now, I know, there's one thing I know about parenting. My children love when I come in early in the morning and tell them to get up. Wake up. You guys up yet? Everybody up. Get up. I yell it from downstairs. I yell it from every part of the house. It's one of my favorite things to do as a parent. My wife, we're downstairs. She said, hey, can you go? Can you go make sure the boys are up? You guys up? And then I realized she wanted me to walk upstairs, several flights of stairs. They love it. The boys love it. But they need it because they'll just keep sleeping. They'll just sleep and sleep. There have been days I come home and I'm like, it's noon? And it says, I think they're getting up. Now listen, we laugh, but spiritually, we can be just like children. Spiritually, we can be just like children. We can fall asleep spiritually. We can want to spiritually slumber, a little more sleep, a little more closing of our eyes to our spiritual needs, a little more 
being inoculated by the things of the world so that I don't have to think about the really important things. And notice that the apostle says to them in verse 11, besides this, you know the time. You know what time it is. It's as if Paul is a parent saying to his children, it's time to get up. Now he uses that illustration of the time, and he actually does it in three different ways in verse 11. Notice this. He says first, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. There are three ways in which Paul says this. You know the time, the hour has come, Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, the apostle, theologians are a bit divided. He has one of two things in mind. He is either saying the day of your death and departure from this world is a lot sooner than we often like to recognize, or he is saying the day of the Lord's coming is hastening, and, and there is a time coming when he will not delay. A little while longer, the writer of Hebrews says, and he who tarries will not tarry, but will come. Um, I think it's probably the second sense in which the apostle is uh, touching on here, that he's speaking of the coming of the Lord. He's speaking of the great day. Uh, John Murray notes that the word day in Scripture in this sort of context is used in a various combination to designate the, the last day, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day is hastening. That day is coming. Every day we are a day closer to that day. Paul is not saying that he thought Christ would come in his day or in the days of the apostle. He didn't know. Just as Jesus in the days of his flesh said that he did not know the day nor the hour when he would come again. Now, according to his divine nature, the Son knows everything. God has set a day when he will wrap up all of human history, everything will come to an end. And he will say, there will be time no more. And that day is hastening, and Christians are to live in light of that day. And when we stop living in light of that day, we start allowing ourselves to fall asleep spiritually and to do things we would never dream of doing if we really were cognizant that the day was approaching. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his great resolutions, it's probably the greatest of his resolutions, said, resolved not to be found doing anything I would be ashamed of if the Lord were to come. How many things we do that we're ashamed of if the Lord were to come? the ways we speak to each other, the things we think about, the things we're engaged in, our actions, where we go, who we spend time with, how many things we will be ashamed of on that day because of uh, giving ourselves over to the desires of our flesh. And Paul understands that Christians are not immune to this. Paul understands that professing believers are not immune to this, that we can very much be like the five foolish virgins who didn't have their lamps filled with oil and their wicks trimmed and were not like men waiting for their master. Um, we can fill our days with every single thing and not one time have our minds filled with the thought that the Lord may come today. 
You know, I heard it said recently, and it's very powerful. Christ only has one thing on his calendar. To come again with glory and power. That's it. Christ has one thing on his calendar. You may have 50 things on your calendar. He has one to come again. There is nothing left between his first and second coming except for him to fulfill his work and come again in glory and power. And the Christian is to live soberly in light of that reality. Uh, What a difference that would make if we really remembered the time. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now, we live at a time when the dawn of grace has appeared. This is very important. We live in what the scripture calls the end of the ages, the last days. Not this generation right now, but all generations from the first to the second coming. These are the end of the ages. We live in the age of the dawn of grace. Christ has appeared. The writer of Hebrews says Christ has come once for sin. He will come a second time apart from sin for salvation. Uh, We live in the already not yet between the coming of Christ and the consummation. Uh, We live in the era of redemptive history. When Christ has come, he's fulfilled the promises of God. He's died. He's been buried. He's been risen. He's brought the power of the age to come. He is spreading the gospel to the nations. We live at a time when the Lord Jesus is already accomplishing the eschatological realities that the Old Testament believers were waiting for, and we live during that age. He has delivered us, Paul says in Galatians 1, from the present evil age, and he has delivered us into, as it were, the age to come. And that means that if we recognize that, we are to live as men and women in light of that reality. That should so shape our mind and heart that we are constantly thinking, the time has come, the hour has come. Now, if we really recognize that, it's impossible that we'll live in spiritual slumber and sleep. You know, a lot of people make a big deal about times and seasons and books are written and people try to predict when Christ is going to come again. Let me just read you a quote by Augustine, who I mentioned there at the beginning of this sermon. Augustine famously said, he who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who says that it's far off or he who says it's near, but rather he who, whether it is far off or near, waits for it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, And fervent love. Now that's the connection to what went before in this passage. I told you it's not always evident how these things go together. Notice Paul has said in the previous section, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. All the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. They're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now if I recognize that the time of the Lord's coming is at hand, if I recognize that the day is approaching, if I recognize that salvation is closer than when I first believed, then I'm going to want to be active in loving my neighbor and doing no harm to him or her in light of the Lord's coming. If I love the coming of the Lord, I'm not going to be unfaithful to my wife. 
or my husband, if you're a woman in here. If I love the coming of the Lord and I recognize that it's coming and I recognize salvation is nearer than when it believes, I'm not going to hate my brother in, his, in my heart. I'm going to want to love and do good to the, my brother or sister. I'm not going to want to take from them. I'm going to want them to prosper. You see, this is a great motivation to us living out the Christian life. If I recognize the time is at hand and the day is approaching, I'm going to want to be active in doing no harm to my neighbor, but rather seeking his or her good. I think the apostle is saying more, though. He is telling us how we are to live in the totality of our lives as Christians in this fallen world. Um, Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish pastor, said to awake out of sleep is to see the divine things as realities. When you are half asleep, you see things imperfectly. You are not affected by divine realities. What is it to awake out of sleep? To awake out of sleep is to see sin as it is, your heart as it is, Christ as he is, the love of God in Christ Jesus as it is. And you can see all of this, McShane says, by looking at Calvary's cross. If I find myself spiritually asleep, loving this world, loving the things of this world, loving to feed my flesh, if I find that, how do I awaken out of sleep? I look at the cross. And I see what it cost for God to deal with my sin and my sensuality and my rebellion and all of my immorality. McShane says, you can see this by looking at Calvary's cross. It is an awful thing to look at the cross and not be affected. Listen very carefully. It's an awful thing to look at the cross and not be affected. Nor feel conviction of sin. Nor feel drawn to Christ. You see, Paul is not saying, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better. Paul's not saying, be more rigid and more disciplined. Paul's not saying, go around and just say, hey, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing all the right things. Paul says, fix your eyes on Jesus. See what the Son has done for you. I love the way the hymn writer puts this. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great at the cross here, can view its nature rightly here, its evil estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bore the awful load. The Son of God. The Son of Man by God appointed. David's Son and David's Lord. You see, Paul is saying, awake. Look at the Lord Jesus. Look at the cross. Remember him. Remember what he's done. Remember what he's promised to do again. Remember that he's coming again. And in remembering, wake up. You know, as I was wrestling with this, I thought, this is not, this is not a comforting sermon. It's not meant to be. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm going to say these hard things, and if you don't feel comforted, hey, I'm sorry. He wants us to take these seriously. He wants us to say, listen, our lives are short. The time is short. We only get so many days, so many months, so many years. Um, I am now at that age where I catch myself saying about celebrities, man, I can't believe that guy's 94. He was like 40 yesterday. The time goes quick, very quick. The psalmist says it's a breath, it's a vapor. Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may get 
a heart of wisdom. The apostle saying, remember the time, remember the hour, wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now notice, as Paul says, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. He is not saying that, that we need to somehow work for salvation, nor is he saying that believers don't already have salvation. There's a very interesting way in which the apostles speak about salvation in the New Testament. They speak of salvation in three tenses. We were saved. Think of Ephesians 2. By grace, you have been saved. We were already saved. We were regenerated. We were, we were born again. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We have been saved. And then the, the apostles speak of us in the second tense as being saved. And then as in this passage, that we will be saved. I think that the apostles do that so that we would take seriously the nature of salvation. That while we have been saved, we are not yet glorified. And that means we can't become complacent. We can't rest on some experience we thought we had at some period. We certainly can't rest in having prayed some prayer. But that every day we are to recognize that the full consummation of salvation is not yet, and yet it is hastening. And it is closer now than when we first believed. At the consummation, we'll experience the full application of the redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. That's not a reality now. Now, we should long for that full realization more than anything. And when we take an inventory check of our hearts and our minds, our actions, our desires, our motivations, the things we invest our time and energy in, it oftentimes sadly reveals that many of us have grown spiritually sluggish and are slumbering. And so Paul says, wake up. He says, it's time to get up. The time has come. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I love the way our Westminster Confession of Faith puts this when it, when it reflects on why we don't know when Christ is coming again. What, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever thought, man, it'd be great if we just knew what day. The Westminster Confession says this, Christ would have us to be persuaded that there is a day of judgment but that we won't know what that day is, that men may shake off carnal security. Here's what he means. If I told you Christ is going to come back on February 24th, 2024, you should kick me out of this pulpit and depose me from ministry. So let me just put that out there. And, and please don't read people that tell you when they think Christ is coming again. Please, that's heresy. That's, the church has long noted that's heresy. The Bible rejects that. But if I told you he's come in on February 24th, 2024, you couldn't go to the oyster roast that y'all should probably be going to otherwise. But, but, you and I would have the propensity to want to live whatever we want to do now because it's like it's not coming until that day. And the divines say we don't know what day so that we would shake off carnal security and always be watchful. Always be watchful. 
I was thinking this week how much of our Lord Jesus' teaching is watch, watch and pray. Be vigilant, watch, wait. Be like men that wait for their master. That servant that's not found watching doesn't enter into the joy of the Lord. And so we are called to watch and hope and live in light of that day. And then secondly, and related to that, Paul essentially says, remember what clothing you're to wear. You know, the the second thing my children love after we yell at them to get up six times is is the fighting over what clothes they're going to wear. That just seems like a, a Christian tradition in our home. Fighting about what clothes to wear. One of the boys took one of the other kids' shirts, and I don't have any clothes, and I can't wear this, and I outgrew this, and Mom, you didn't buy me this, and they're up now. They're awake. Now, what do they wear? And, and the Lord says, time to get up, time to wake up, and here's what you're to put on. Notice this. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. What does God want us to wear as Christians who are awake? He wants us to wear the weapons of our warfare, which are spiritual. He wants us to put on the armor of light. That is shorthand for everything Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, why is Paul saying, wake up, put on the armor of light? Because Paul understands that our Christian pilgrimage is warfare. Listen carefully, it is warfare. And when we are spiritually asleep, we forget that that battle is raging constantly. I was reminded this week of uh, really that, that magnificent picture in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress of Christian making that that pilgrimage, and that pilgrimage is warfare. And one of the things, one of the things that you never find Christian doing on that pilgrimage is just falling asleep and staying asleep. He is ever moving forward through temptations and trials and challenges and difficulties. He's ever moving forward. He's vigilant. He's watchful. He's wearing the armor of light. And So often, if I can say this honestly this morning, we are like Christian going into Vanity Fair and taking all the armor off and just saying, let's have a good time. I feel that. I don't need to know much about you to know that you feel that. If you said you didn't feel that, you would be lying. Um, That's why Bunyan wove that into the narrative. There's a battle raging There's a battle raging for the souls of men and women. There's a battle raging for our souls. And notice that Paul says in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now what is Paul saying? referring to when he says, put on the Lord Jesus. I don't think he has in mind 
the imputed righteousness of Christ. He has that in mind earlier in Romans, very clearly. The imputed righteousness, we are clothed in his righteousness. Every believer has the righteousness of Christ credited to him and her. That's how we're going to stand on Judgment Day. But here Paul's talking about in the Christian life. He's talking about in Christian living, we are to put on Christ. That means those things that Christ was marked by are to be true of believers. It's unthinkable to think of Jesus doing any of the things that the Apostle Paul is warning us about fleeing from. Um, The Lord Jesus never gave in to sexual sin, drunkenness, immorality, jealousy, envy, bitterness, strife, anger, hatred, malice. He never gave in to any of those things. And so Paul's saying, look, you who have propensities to feed the flesh, here's what you're to do. You're to put on the armor of Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Um... You know, what a difference this would make for us if we really every morning woke up and thought, as we're getting dressed, I need to put on the Lord Jesus. And it needs to be evident that that's what I'm wearing. Um, It's his armor, by the way. Uh, William Gurnall, one of the Puritans, in his great book, The Christian in Complete Armor, says, what is this armor? This armor is Christ. We are to put on the Lord Jesus, where Christ is set up under the notion of armor. The apostle bids us put on the Lord Jesus, implying that till Christ is put on, the creature is unarmed. It's not a man's morality. Listen carefully. It's not a man's morality and philosophical virtues that repel temptation. It's the graces of Christ. These are the armor, the girdle of truth, the, belt plate of right, the breastplate of righteousness, and all the rest. We are to put on the new man. Uh, the Apostle John captures this when he says, everyone who says that he is in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. Um, now, let, let me say this. We live in a world that's obsessed with dress, fashion, clothing, Um, if I could hide every post on social media about fashion, I would. We're obsessed with that. Let me say this. If you put on the Lord Jesus, don't expect other people to be enamored with what you're wearing. Remember, they hated him for being adorned with the sweetness and the beauty of holiness. They hated him for his grace. They hated him for his mercy. They hated him for his love of truth. They hated the Lord Jesus. And when we put him on, we're wearing what the world hates. And yet we're wearing what is pleasing to God. You know, this is such an important word for us here at the beginning of this year. You know, we're already through the month of January. We're into February, the time as one of our own philosophers said, keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. (laughs) Just slipping away. And there's only so much time. The hour is far spent. The day is at hand. And the Lord is saying, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 
Um, I don't know where you are this morning. You may be in deep spiritual slumber. And I may be like that parent that my children hate, crying out, saying, hey, wake up. But it's time to wake up. It's time for every one of us to wake up and to put on the Lord Jesus. And that is done, as I said already, by recognizing who he is, what he has done, the redemption that we have in him, that we have been purchased by his blood, that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, that we are to glorify God in our body and spirit that are God's, that we are to live in light of the hope of his coming. I love the way the Apostle Paul says that. He says, he says um, that, that we eagerly wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are we waiting and hoping? Are we living in light of that? Um, if, if the secret things of our lives were exposed, would it reveal that we are spiritually asleep or that we are spiritually awake and clothed? Now, let me say this this morning as we close. It may be that you have never been converted. God used this to bring Augustine from spiritual death to spiritual life. And my hope is that he'll do that if you've never come to know in saving ways the grace of God in truth. But it may be that you have known God's grace and that you have become lukewarm and that you have given over to feeding your flesh Look, all of us have known those seasons and those times. We would lie if we said we didn't. And so to us, there is a word of urgency that we would wake up, that we would recognize that our salvation is nearer. Listen, there's no uncertainty there. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. There is certainty there. He's not saying our salvation is uncertain. It's nearer than when we first believed. The night is spent. The day is at hand. Let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us walk properly. Let us not gratify our flesh. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know that these are weighty truths and these are truths that are meant to prick our consciences and to wake us from spiritual slumber. And so we do ask our God that you would do that for each one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, for every man and woman in this place, for every boy and girl in this place, for the officers who are gathered here, for husbands and wives, for children and parents, Lord, in every relationship, would you please give us grace to be fully awake spiritually, to be men and women who are watching and waiting for the Lord. Lord Jesus, we know that we cannot do this unless you are at work in us. We know that we cannot do this apart from the gospel. And so would you cause uh, your grace to be operative in us this morning, that you would wake us from spiritual slumber, that you would clothe us with the armor of light, and that you would make us a people who walk as we ought in the day. Lord, would that be evident that we are clothed in the Lord Jesus. Father, please clothe us in your Son. Clothe us with him, that we may live our lives in hope, knowing that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Lord, do this for us. We plead with you to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.